What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Hello, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group and the host of the What to Know podcast show. I am here today actually for a second time. Uh, We won't go into the details, but a little technical uh, glitch to, to ruin things at Ad Stages office. I am here with the CEO and founder, Sahil uh, Jain, and he was kind enough to indulge me a second time. Uh, The good news is we have the drill down, right? So thank you for joining us today. No problem. Um, So we're going to get started with the the thing that we talked about yesterday. You have a little bit of a unique history, and I actually was able to read a little bit more uh, in one of the Inc. articles that I read about you. But you've dropped out of both high school and college, which normally would not be a great sort of start to your career. you actually did that very purposefully. You've uh, you've done it because of the fact that we, as we discussed yesterday, uh, when we recorded this the first time, that you sort of felt like you were ready for some real business experience. So let's talk a little bit about you know your first decision, and then I think you went to Yahoo, sort of a small job, and then there was a bigger job when you dropped out of Berkeley uh, to go to AOL and work with our friend Tim Armstrong, who's the CEO and chairman. So. Um, jump in. Sure. Um, so, so basically, how I started my career. So I kind of start from the very beginning. I'll tell you a little bit more about myself and then how everything got started. So my father was an entrepreneur for many, many years in the telecom industry. Perhaps through osmosis, I got some of that kind of itch from him. But essentially, you know, I grew up in many different places: Portland, Oregon, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Houston, Texas, California. I spent a lot of time in New York. And for me, uh, my first real job was actually when I was 15. It was in the professional video game industry. So I was playing video games uh, for money playing a game called Counter-Strike, and I got to travel around a little bit, got to made, make enough money for, you know, Wingstop every weekend, and that's kind of about it. But it was a really fun, it was kind of before we called it eSports, which now is very popular, and maybe I should have stayed in it. Uh, but in any case, that was kind of my first uh, foray into technology, actually. I started building my own computers, you know, I was coding up small scripts and things like that for a variety of different, you know, uses inside of video games. And then that led me into um, what was initially an internship at Yahoo, the, uh, my, I guess the summer after my junior year of high school. So I was going to an all guys, Jesuit, sports, college prep school called Bellarmine, great school. I was a 4-2 GPA student, playing soccer, running cross country, you know, the whole works, right? The problem was, you know, everyone was doing that. And so this opportunity after my junior year um, to go and work at Yahoo presented itself. It was just during the summer, two or three weeks into the job, I taught myself Perl, which is a platform kind of coding language, test automation language. Um, and I moved into a platform engineering role. So still like, you know, on the QA team, you could say somewhat of a remedial kind of role, but you know, foot in the door. My fifth or sixth week there, I came up with my first business pitch. It's my first time ever pitching something, 50 slides long, took an hour and a half to get through. But it was a reasonable idea to basically bring the professional video game industry into Yahoo as a content vertical like Yahoo Sports um, and do it mobile first. Because I worked at Yahoo Mobile, which back in 2007 was number one in the mobile space. before iOS, before Android and the iPhone were out. Um, and so it was a pretty cool team. Anyways, uh, they didn't fall asleep. They actually liked it. They asked me to stay and work on that full time. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to take this opportunity. It's something totally different than all my other classmates are doing. Super unorthodox, but I'm making pretty good money as a 17-year-old. And um, I'm the only one that's done this. I was the youngest guy ever there. Um, and so that's kind of the reason, the impetus for why I took the Yahoo job. I was there for about a year and a half, at which point I decided it was time for me to try out college not for vocational training, but really just to grow up and mature as an individual. And so I was fortunate enough to get to UC Berkeley. I attended for philosophy with a strong focus on German philosophy. So Nietzsche, Wittgenstein, a lot of, you know, David Hume, so on and so forth. 
Um, and that was great. The content of it was wonderful, but going from working full time back into school was pretty challenging. I just wasn't the mode that I was in any longer. And so I ended up actually um, leaving. I started doing side projects, worked at a magazine company. And then during my sophomore year when I was 19, a lot of my Yahoo friends uh, went over to AOL when Tim had joined. He's kind of building out this new, call it a regime. Um, and so I ended up leaving uh, Berkeley. They asked me to come by and work with that new team and joined as in a position called Strategic Initiatives. Really simple, my job was we had a 10 to $30 million budget to acquire small companies. And so that was the first time that I was sourcing deals, looking at small startups, meeting all the big accelerators and incubators uh, to find companies that we wanted to buy. And that's when I was like, wow, why am I on this side of the table building company or you know, acquiring companies? I should be on the other side building businesses. And so that's, I very quickly left. I was only there for about five months or so, five or six months. I ended up leaving and joining two of the guys I had brought in and joined as their third co-founder. This is my next, this is my first startup. This is called Trigger.io. Um, and you know, we raised two and a half million dollars. We grew the team to about 15 or so. Uh, and then you know, about halfway into that job, I had the idea for um, AdStage, right? Which is what I'm doing now. This is about six years ago. And so a year later, I resigned from Trigger. And then uh, 10 days after that, May 2012, uh, I started AdStage with my co-founder and CTO, Jason Wu. Um, and here we are you know, five years later. So that's the story. Well, it's a great story. And uh, I have to say, I am intrigued by AdStage. And so uh, a friend introduced us. I was able to watch the video that you did with Robert Scoble, which I think certainly helped you early days when you and I were talking in our prep, uh, you mentioned that you sort of completely re-engineered the platform based on a conversation you had with someone, which will uh, foreshadowing for a, a question we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but tell us a little bit about AdStage. If I'm not mistaken, it's a platform you've created that has um, interoperability with some of the different social platforms with your Google AdWords. And you mentioned yesterday, and I'd love you to talk more about it, is it also plugs in with your Google Ad, your um, analytics, right? So you have a closed loop, and I won't steal any more thunder, but tell us sort of how you built this and, and what it does, and tell us a little bit about some of the customers you serve. Sure. Um, so AdStage at a very simple level, our mission is to connect the paid marketer, which is the advertising marketer, to the data that they need. So historically, online advertising and advertising in general was just used top of funnel get the lead in and then sales takes over. Now with advancements in measurement, advancements in advertising techniques, retargeting, so on and so forth, you can advertise throughout the entire decision-making cycle, which is incredibly valuable in terms of moving a lead from a prospect to you know, cold prospect to a warm lead to contract in hand and so on, right? And so you know, when I s had the idea for ad stage come about, I, there was one big problem, right? We have more and more ad networks that are starting to spawn out about you know, six years ago or so. Facebook ads just came out, Twitter ads started to come out as well, LinkedIn ads were in beta. And there's all these different places outside of Google AdWords where I could put my ad dollars. The problem was then being able to measure everything under one roof became very challenging. I just wanted to simply see if, uh, you know, how my Google was doing compared to my Facebook ads under one roof. And that was challenging. So the premise of AdStage, very simple. If you're a digital advertiser, you're spending on multiple ad networks, Google, Bing, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, you want to get all your paid ad data under one roof, and then you can report on it, you can analyze it. And then you also want to be able to build automation to take action on those, you know, on the analytics. You can do that in ad stage. So the idea here is agencies and in-house teams. 49% of our customers are agencies. 51% are in-house teams. We have, uh, you know, agencies like Hannapin Marketing. We have in-house teams like Zendesk, uh, Zillow, uh, Domo, Tableau, and a few others. And the idea is they bring all their paid data in one place. So it's a single place to see all my ad data, digital ad data. And then they can take action on it at scale. 
And then we have our third product, which is an API where they can actually take all that data and ship it somewhere else. So all of us maybe store our ad data in our internal database systems or you know, a Redshift kind of database or whatever the case may be. And so it's, otherwise, they'd have to go to each of these networks, pull the data separately, and do it. And it's a really simple platform. You know, it takes five minutes to sign up for it. It's a 14-day free trial, very different than what the ad tech market has historically seen. And that's it. So I have to ask you a question, which we didn't get to cover originally. But yeah. as I've been thinking about this, it feels like such a no-brainer. Like, what resistance do you get? I mean, are there competitors that people are with that they don't want to leave? Or is it maybe some fear, maybe even on the agency's parts, says the agency guy, that uh, maybe the creative that they're putting out there, what they're doing isn't as effective, and this is something that shines a light on that? Yeah, um, it's a good question. So I remember I was just actually telling the team today, so I, had, I, did, I gave my investor pitch to the whole company today just to, so they can see how I do it. Um, one of the interesting things was when I first started the company about five and a half years ago, the number one reason why investors said no was because they said, silent. no one's going to advertise outside of Google AdWords. And boy, were they wrong, right? Then Facebook came around. I've recently had people say, hey, there's a duopoly with Google and Facebook. No one's going to advertise across this. Because our value is when you're in cross-channel. That's really when you start to see a lot of value in ad stage. I still think they're wrong. The way that you need to kind of look at it is what you're starting to see is this segmentation of channels or ad networks. You have your primaries. Google and Facebook, and I think there's going to be a third, which will be Amazon. Then you have your secondary networks, which are a little bit more niche, which is like Twitter, Pinterest. I'm not the biggest, you know, I'm not very bullish on Snapchat, but Snapchat and a few others, Quora ads. And then you have your tertiary networks. And so all of them will be valuable because you do need to diversify your spend. Sure, if you can turn a dollar into two on Facebook, you'd say, well, pour, you know, pour $100 million into it. But at some point, there's diminishing returns, and you have to simply diversify your spend, right? And so... Um, you know, I think the only area where agencies, for example, uh, may have pause, which they don't. I think all agencies have to change. Digital advertising agencies in general know that. They have to adapt, you know, uh, uh, adopt technology, sorry. Um, and it's going to make, you know, it actually can improve their margins, right? Because less work, less, you know, manpower required to actually get a task done. One of the biggest time sinks for any agency is reporting, getting all the data, showing all the data in a nice, pretty PDF to their end client. Right? And so we help them solve that. So in some ways, we actually activate the agency to focus on the things that people should do, which is creative, building creative, planning. That's a lot harder to do with machines. right? But reporting, analytics, automation, machines should end up taking over and doing the things that they can do. Everything else should be left to the controller or the person. And so yes, it's a no-brainer. Uh, certainly, there are competitors. Um, we think we have obviously our unique take in terms of the market where we're selling to, which is mid-market, not necessarily just the Fortune 500, definitely not the SMB. Um, and then of course our approach, UI, I think we're going to a world where any company can rebuild a software that another company has. The differences uh, are in the team, the execution. Uh, I think design is a huge difference as well that often is overlooked. And so that's our positioning today in the world. That's a good answer and, and certainly I work for an agency where 100 of our 600 employees focus on analytics and data science, and so I love the nod toward you know the data out, the API. Um, you did mention in our sort of pre-discussion that you guys have started to do these benchmark reports. So I think yep. one of the things I'll make your case that we talked about before was thought leadership and sort of showing versus just you know telling. And I think the fact that you're starting to be able to show across the multiple billions, I think you said $1.8 billion of poured through your, um, your platform. 
that gives you a lot of insight into what's working and what doesn't by industry. So talk a little bit about these benchmark reports, and then I want to start to focus a little bit on the future of advertising. I know you've got some good answers for that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, we just, so uh, since we started the company, we've had about a little over $1.8 billion go through the platform, probably break the $2 billion mark this year, uh, which has given us a very unique view because this is spend not just on one channel. This is spent across the seven networks we have today integrated into AdStage, Google, Bing, which is search advertising. Then you have social with Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. And so being able to see you know, how is Google doing in comparison to Facebook, again, I don't think that, it, one thing I will just kind of preface is, I don't think it should be a war between Google and Facebook. You should be using both of those together in one sort of strategy. They're different types of advertising, and certainly they should be used together. And now you're starting to see more discussions around attribution Right, because people will say, "Hey, you know, I saw a fa you know an ad on Facebook for ad stage. I didn't click on it. Then I later searched for an advertising management or data management platform for paid ads in Google. I saw an ad for ad stage. I clicked on it. Then you should give Facebook some credit for planting the brand, so on and so forth. Right. So that's starting to move us more into that world. So these benchmark reports, we've never actually looked at the data and said, well, over the last few quarters, what's been happening? We have every single metric from every single one of these networks." So we can see, you know, our cost per clicks, our CPCs rising, our CPMs, cost per impressions, are those rising? Um, are people actually spending more as these networks become more expensive? So one of the things you're starting to see on these social channels is that um, these are all, you know, second priced auctions, right? And as you get more and more businesses, so Facebook recently announced they had 5 million active advertisers, up from 4 million about six months before that, and, you know, 3 million six months before that. And on their whole network, they have about 65 million uh, businesses. So they've actually activated only about 8% of their businesses as advertisers, but you know that's going to continue to grow. As you have more people buying ads, the auction becomes more competitive, and therefore, the price starts to increase. And so across the board, you can see this. Across all the social channels, their auctions are becoming a lot more competitive. The one thing that's interesting, especially with channels like Facebook, which are a bit more proven and proven from an ROI standpoint or what we call ROAS, return on ad spend, is that people are willing to pay still, despite the price going up. So you see spend and budget continuing to increase while prices increase. Um, and that's a huge testament to the actual you know, success metrics of running Facebook ads, for example. Um, and it's also happening in smaller scales, but on Twitter and LinkedIn and, of course, Instagram being a subset of Facebook. So. These benchmark reports, we're going to produce them probably every quarter. We have a really big, so the first one was just social, so Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. This next one is going to have um, search and social, uh, and it'll come out probably just in about two weeks or so. It'll be really fascinating to look at what are the trends. You know, now we got out of the summer months, we're about to get into Q4, which is usually the biggest uh, for advertising in general in terms of spend. Are people going to, is our, our prices going to skyrocket? Are people going to keep paying for it? Is, does it still work from a payback period? Um, I think that I think they will for sure, uh, but it'll be very interesting to see who can stay in that game, who can play in the auction or not. Yeah, um, I think this is a good segue into our next question, which is around the future of advertising. Some people have declared advertising is dead. I think most of us know that advertising is not dead and is never going away. It's just evolving quickly. And one of the points you brought up, you know, as we were discussing this before, was the fact that. It's about relevance. And one of the beauties of what you do, and I think what most smart marketers are doing, is taking data and informing better advertising. Because I think we, as consumers, realize when you see something that's relevant to you, especially if it's entertaining, it uses storytelling, it doesn't feel like an ad. It feels like, oh, this is something I want to watch or engage with or see. 
uh, other things that are unwanted, you know, regardless of whether it's just a quick image or 10 seconds of video, uh, you can't get through it fast enough. So let's talk a little bit about that. And also we started to touch on some of the new formats, right? So voice and talked a little bit yesterday about um, uh, chatbots and what that means and yep. AI and how that plays a role. So yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so, uh, so the future of advertising is a very interesting question. I think in the near term, you're going to start to see, obviously, what a lot of people have been talking about, things like video uh, is going to be, you know, hot, kind of rich content or rich media advertising starting to take off. And the reason for that is that the production quality required is not nearly as high as it used to be, as well as the production cost. You're starting to see a huge proliferation of user-generated content, which we call UGC. Um, you know, someone takes a Snapchat video of them drinking a Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola might say, look, that's a lot more relatable. It's a human. It's in the real world. And they may choose to promote that on Twitter instead of, a commercial that costs tens of millions of dollars, right? Um, and they have the distribution channels, and you know, Twitter's big thing was they have a Super Bowl every day in terms of viewership and whatnot, and people are going to use that. I think that as we continue to see this happen, though, this is in the short term, I think in the long term what you're gonna start to see is uh, things that we probably can't even really fully conceive of right now. So I believe, so I, I gave you the story yesterday, but um, you know, my goal at the ad stage is to build a company that lasts generations, not just 20, 30 years. And in order to do that, you have to have a bet on what the future is going to look like and what the world will look like in 100 years from now. And we think that no matter what, you know, the word advertising, the word, it, it, the root is ad, which just means to or towards. That's it. It didn't, amount, it didn't matter if you paid money towards it or whatever the case may be. It's just to get attention towards something. And so advertising has been around forever. And in that basic root form, will always be around. It's just going to change in form factor. And so I tell people that one other thing that I have as a goal at ad stage is you guys, have, of course, a lot of you, I'm sure, have seen Batman. And at the very bottom of Wayne Enterprises, he has this like R&D lab where he builds crazy cool stuff. So I would love to have that in the advertising world because some of the coolest technology has come out of the advertising world, things like sentiment analysis right, or topic analysis. I think that as we start to move into a world where, and this is going to be a little bit more out there, but you know, we talk about wearables today, the Apple Watch or Fitbit or whatever the case may be. I'm starting to think about embedded devices. You know, my father has diabetes, um, having some pill that's dropped into his body, tells him his insulin levels, so on and so forth, blood pressure, blood sugar, uh, and ports that back. That's going to be data that's available. And I know that's scary, but this, I don't, I'm one that doesn't believe privacy is going to exist really in its true form today. And so if we just believe that for a moment, you're gonna start to get biometric level data, right? Imagine that you have embedded devices in your brain and you're gonna start to get things like when your neural synapse fires or how do you feel, do you feel happy, sad, or mad when you see a page load or when you look at a product. And all of those are gonna influence, hopefully, better marketing. Now, the challenge with any of these technological advancements is uh, there's always evil in the world. And so, you know, when used for evil, if you look at just a video ad, let's look at it in a very, something that everyone can relate to in terms of the audience here, is um, a video ad that pops up on a website where you, it gets in your way, you can't click it away, it's really frustrating, then you get five more of them, and they have fake little boxes of cancel here and there, whatnot. That's really being used for evil, right? Clickbaity and whatnot. But then you have the Super Bowl, right? Or you have Facebook when you wake up in the morning, and you see a post that's been sponsored that's super relevant to you, and without a doubt, you click on it, and you read it. Now there's all the whole, like, well, has it been, you know, did Xbox pay for that review, and therefore you read an Xbox? I don't know, if the value exchange is there and I get value from reading the article, is it really that, is it a hindrance or is it actually informative? Can it be? And so I do believe in a world where we're gonna wake up and we're gonna be able to access, you know, I look at my Facebook feed and everything I see will be relevant to me, hyper relevant. It'll become my curated news feed is what Facebook will become, promoted or not, right? If I go on Amazon, the ads I'll see there, they know what I wanna buy, the frequency at which I buy it, they're basically building me a intelligent shopping cart 
that pre-populates for me. And these are all different forms of advertising. And just to kind of finish off, um, you know, you spoke about voice interface, and uh, you know, we're going to have, I think there's going to be cerebral interfaces, right? You control things with your mind. If you saw the movie Her uh, by Joaquin Phoenix, right? He was in that. Um, and so we have the Alexa from Amazon, which is one of my favorite devices and products today. And I think that pretty soon Alexa is going to tell you what's around you. If Whole Foods is having a discount on uh, organic avocados, that's an ad as well. So it's going to change in form or factor. Without a doubt, it is the reason why the internet's paid for. So we should thank advertising in some cases. Um, and I think that we will need to adapt to the new forms, to the different, you know, the, call it the loss of privacy that hopefully will be used for good, not for evil. And then we'll have to see, and for us as a company, as long as advertising exists in some form or factor, which we believe it will, then there needs to be some way to measure the effectiveness of it. And that's what we hope to be, uh, you know, 100 years from now. Well, it's a great explanation, and actually, I think that you know anyone that's in marketing that needs to get their message out, they should pay attention to what you just said because I don't think you could be more right. I do want to be mindful of time because we are uh, trying to keep to a short time budget here. Um, I'm going to ask you a truncated version of the influence question, and sure. I'll focus on the books. You had a fascinating uh, answer about sort of who influences you, which is sort of no one person influences you. Yeah. Um, but I would like to talk a little bit about books and how you read books sure. and sort of what you take away. And you actually had a couple of good examples that you wanted to share. Sure. Um, so uh, so I'll, I'll preface. I haven't read a book end to end probably in the last like 15 years or so. I usually read 10 pages, sit back and think about it. Uh, I always carry a book from David Hume around with me, uh, A Treatise of Human Nature. I really love that book. I think it's very interesting from a thought process standpoint. Uh, we're, you know, we're not rationally justified in making causal inference, which is a pretty interesting thing to think about in general. Um, two other books that I really love that my dad introduced me to. Uh, one is called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, which is about you know the brain being split into system one, which is kind of quick decision making, and system two, which is longer term decision making, and when to activate the differences. Uh, and the other book that I really like is called Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Taleb. Uh, very, he also wrote The Black Swan, which a lot of people have, have read. Really fascinating there as well is the ability to, you know, one of my favorite pages, there's a chart, uh, a table, and there's two columns. And there are, uh, an example of that would be, uh, on one side it says that it's very dangerous to mistake luck for skill. But it's not as dangerous to mistake skill for luck. And there's a bunch of those different examples. And I think while, these, while, while a lot of these books aren't necessarily uh, business books, I think they all certainly help educate you in, 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 on how to think. Right? Just like Socrates used to have the Socratic method of asking a lot of questions. These are all expanding your capacity to think and to question. And I think those are by far the most valuable traits that one could have. And then, um, and I don't know if you want me to give the story about the lion, but I can give you a story if that makes sense, if, if you think it's appropriate. Yeah, go for it. I'm, I'm marching to your, you know, beat we'll in your it. time here. So if you have the time, then let's share the story. We'll make it happen. So you asked me yesterday about who influences me. And I said that I don't really have a specific mentor, and that's not me being cocky, like, oh, there's no one's smart enough to teach me, or whatever the case. I just don't have that person necessarily. Um, often, you know, people ask, is it my dad, because he was an entrepreneur as well. And I used to say, and we don't really talk about business. Very infrequently uh, do we jump on the phone and talk about something specific around business. We do, however, have a lot of conversations about philosophy or these types of books and the theories behind it. And all of that, what I realize now, absolutely influences how I carry myself as a CEO here at the company. And so I guess by extension, we do. Um, one of the best stories was I just got back from a ton of business travel. And I was uh, sitting at home, and I was watching Netflix on a weekend. 
uh, and I was watching this movie. I forgot exactly what it was called, but it was Anne Hathaway was in it. Uh, I think um, Robert De Niro was in it. And it's about how she started a company, and she's this crazy, frantic, neurotic founder who's working super hard, is going, you know, always in the, just working super late, relationships are ending because of it and whatnot. Um, and I called my dad because it was, you know, really hitting home. That's what the Silicon Valley says you're supposed to be as a founder, right? And so I was, I called my dad and said, hey, you know, two things. One, how is it okay for me? Is it bad that I'm sitting at home on a weekend, not doing emails, and I'm watching Netflix and binging Netflix? I feel like this movie is telling me I need to be doing the opposite. I need to be working super hard, working super late nights, being a little neurotic. And he said, he gave me an example of when he went to his first kind of business where he took over and he had 200 direct reports. It was manufacturing. He used to go to the manufacturing floor and always just spend eight hours. Uh, oh, it's called The Intern. That's right. There you go. Um, that was the movie. It's called The Intern. I think it's on Netflix. I we did a little IMDBing. I was like, for two days good. in a row, we, I should have looked this up. Yeah, so that's good. The I intern. Had to look it up. Um, and so I called him and he said, you know, he used to have 200 direct reports, crazy, but he used to spend eight hours on, a, on the floor just talking with the engineers, looking at things, getting you know, hands on with the product. And he spent four hours every day reading philosophy in his office. So he said, look, it's not about being busy. That that's not the goal. And in fact, that might be a problem if you're always busy. And so he gave me one anecdote that, that was really interesting, one analogy, sorry, that's pretty interesting. So he said, Sahil, you know, worker ants are constantly working all the time, right? They're always picking up things, they're delivering things, they're keeping the ant colony up. And then separately, you have the lion in the savanna. And the lion in the savanna looks lazy, right? He's kind of lounging, just kind of waiting, enjoying the breeze if there is any. But in reality, the, the lion isn't lazy. The lion is always in tune, is always paying attention because the second that prey jumps into his or her vision, they're, they're on, they're ready to go, they're gonna get after it, and they will get that prey to you know, provide for the family. And so at the end of it, he simply asked me, he said, Sahil, do you wanna be an ant or a lion? And I thought that was really interesting um, and, uh, and, and great that he could do that right off the top of his head. But I thought it was a great analogy for what, how you wanna position yourself how you want to prioritize your energy um, in terms of where you want to focus your energy as a business leader, founder, or anybody um, from an identity standpoint. So anyways. So from this point on, this interview will be referred to as, do you want to be an ant or do you want to be a lion? I think and so. And we will know that that's uh, depending on the answer, who you are, right? <laughs> um, so final question as we wrap it up. Yeah. Um, and I like to ask everyone this. You're on a deserted island and you have one album you can listen to. Uh, I think you're going to diverge a little bit from that format based on the fact that uh, you're a short burst of yeah. sort of digesting versus long form mm -hmm. uh, type person. But you have some songs, I think, that you wanted to share that would That's be right. your songs that you would take onto the island. That's right. So uh, I think I mentioned these yesterday, but I, these are all my karaoke songs. So I would open up with Build Me Up Buttercup by The Temptations. That's definitely one I would like to have with me. I love Tracy Chapman and Fast Car specifically. Uh, and then I heard it through the grapevine by Marvin Gaye. And I think those would be, you know, I asked, the, I actually asked a slightly different question when we met like dinners or something. I said, if you could go on stage with anybody dead or alive and perform that song with them, who would it be? And I give, I usually give, I heard it through grapevine cause it's so difficult. Um, but I think that would be, I think those are the ones I'd bring with me uh, to keep me calm and enjoy and relax. Well, it's a great answer, and I think that I said I'm going to steal this idea, potentially the karaoke song. So yeah. I may still ask the album question, but I do like that. You know, what's karaoke song? What's your karaoke song? Because I think everyone actually has one. Yeah. Um, mine is somewhere between, you know, um, Stone Temple Pilots plush, you know, <laughs> may or may not be the best song, but it's like <laughs> a, it's sort of monotone enough where I can kind of hack it out. But I like that one, too, of like if you could perform with one person, you know, who would it be? So, yeah, it's fun. 
Anyway, well, this has been fun speaking of, and uh, you know, there aren't many people where if we had to sit down and do the interview twice, I would say, you know, that was really exciting, but I'm happy that we get to do this. Thank you for indulging me in doing that. Uh, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group, the host of the What to Know podcast. Uh, Sahil Jane is my guest today. He's the CEO and founder of AdStage. Uh, good guy, smart guy, handsome, and clearly <laughs> knows a thing or two about the future of advertising. So thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.